TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring. The flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. And welcome to... Overnight America. Whoa. It's amazing how fast and slow time decides to move at the same time. Sometimes it's just unbelievably fast. It feels just like yesterday. I was just uh, bringing our baby back home, and then all of a sudden you realize, no, that was like two months ago. (laughs) How did that happen? My son is getting ready to celebrate a birthday. He's very excited for that. A lot of things change over time, and I saw the story today about legendary KMOX broadcast. Well, not KMOX, but legendary NHL broadcaster Mike Emmerich, Doc Emmerich. I have a KMOX story that kind of ties in with it. It's indirect in a way, and you, it's kind of a stretch. I mean, there might be a little stretch of the imagination, and I've told this story before, but I thought this would be a good opportunity to share how all of these things are connected. How is Doc Emmerich? connected to KMOX. How is that possible? You know, and how does it play to me? I mean, somehow I'm connected in this too. Now, this may sound like a crazy conspiracy theory, but try to um, stay with me here for a moment. Uh, I, I wanted to try to find a way to bring this together. And I may have told you about some of the great people I had the opportunity to work with in the past. And one of those persons went by the name of Bob Chase. Now, separate, apparently here in St. Louis, there was another broadcaster that went by that name. This is a completely different person. Bob Chase, a World War II veteran. He's someone that served and then came back and then got into broadcasting. So you start looking at you know the 50s and 60s era when we're talking about his origins going all the way back to a radio station in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Just so happened to be the same station that I worked at. He was doing Comet Hockey broadcast games, well, among other things, at the radio station. And he was the sports director. At some point, he was doing promotions. Well-loved person in the industry. And he did Comet Hockey, which is a professional hockey team there, all the way up until the start of 2016. He was the longest play-by-play sports person in the country continuously on one team outside of Vin Scully, only second to Vin Scully. And he was just a a well-loved person. I spent a lot of time with him. When I started working at the radio station, he was still doing Comet Hockey games. And I would see him once a week. We would sit down. We would talk. He was one of those people that it didn't matter how busy you were and it didn't matter what else you were doing. When he walked through the door, 
you made as much time as he'll give to you. If he wanted to sit down and talk for an hour, I gladly sat down and would talk an hour with him or whatever it was. And we would talk about broadcasting. We talk about the news. We talk about him. We talk about me. We talk about everything. And it was just such a great thing. Every time I would be at my desk working on whatever, and I'd look up and then there was this little window or whatever into the hallway and I'd see him walk by and he'd always do this thing like, oh, like, you know, he, he was caught off balance or something. He always did this little gag and he would come on in and he had a sheet of paper with him. He'd record a commentary with me and then it would replay on our shows on Friday mornings, his commentary. And then, you know, we'd record liners and things for common hockey broadcasts. Well, in Indiana, there was one young aspiring broadcaster that listened to him, that got him into broadcasting. And that young broadcaster was Doc Emmerich. Just south of Fort Wayne, Doc was living, and he would turn on his radio and listen to Comet Hockey, and he would hear Bob Chase doing his thing. And he was just one of the great, great sports broadcasters. Bob Chase, by the way, he is someone that's won the Lester Patrick Trophy not, I think it was, no, not the Lester Patch. He won an NHL trophy for broadcasting. I, I got to remember which one it is. But he was also someone that was honored in many Hall of Fames. He was well-recognized for what he would do in his contributions to sports. Here's how this all ties into KMOX and Doc Emmerich. There was a time back in the 1960s when a brand-new hockey club was starting to emerge in St. Louis, Missouri, the St. Louis Blues. And... We have Bob Chase, a well-respected and very talented broadcaster, that one day got the call, hey, we want you to try out for the St. Louis Blues job. Now, I have two different versions of how this story went down, one of from Bob Chase and the other one from Scotty Bowman. I actually talked to Scotty Bowman about it, whew, I don't know, five years ago, and I found the interview with Scotty, and I pulled the part... So. Two parts of history. This is how KMOX almost changed history when Bob Chase was offered the job to be the St. Louis Blues play-by-play announcer. This is, by the way, you'll find out who they ended up hiring, but I think you already know. Uh, the one job I, I would have taken, but I got uh, caught from behind on it, was the St. Louis job. And uh, there were some people in St. Louis who had some pretty good, strong politics going, and they... They uh, knocked me out of the job. I had done a couple of games for the Blues, uh, one with Montreal and the other with Chicago on weekends, and then they wanted me right away to finish the year. So they And I would have gone, except it's a Friday afternoon at 4.45, and the phone rings. It's St. Louis. They want me down there Saturday and Sunday to do two games. I'm on the way out the door to do the Indiana State High School Championship basketball. Was I going to walk out and, and let them stand still? No way. I mean, I'm committed, you know, and, and I respected Westinghouse people. So I, I called them immediately and said, you know, with regrets, I can't because. All right. So on Monday, I call them back to see if we're ready to negotiate, and they wouldn't take my calls. Mm. And I felt at that time, if they were willing to tell me, get here, after I explained why I wouldn't, what loyalty might they have to me at some point in the future when they wanted to maybe flush it the other way? Mm. And I figured, I, I know who I'm with here, and they were just quality people. I never regretted a thing. And I mean, Okay, so he went on and told me that he had offers to go do the Detroit Red Wings, the Washington Capitals, 
and the Oakland Seals <laughs> when they were a team. And I think there was another one in there, too. So he received a lot of offers, but he said by that time, he already had a family. The kids were going through school. He didn't want to move. And keep in mind how noble that is. Now, there's always two sides to the story. And I wanted to hear it from someone on the other side that wanted to offer him the job. And that person at the time was a very young coach, uh, hockey administrator, I guess, when he came in. And that person was the legendary Scotty Bowman. We had gone the first year without a a regular announcer. And uh, the KMOX radio station, we we had used their their announcers. You know, we had some good ones, uh, Jack Buck and Jay Randolph, guys like that. But the the owner of the team wanted his own announcer, you know. Mm -hmm. And what he did is he... uh, he actually uh, contacted. He, he must have somebody recommended by. I, I had I had talked about, you know, who could we get? And I said, well, there's a good announcer with the Fort Wayne Comets. But so they they got some tapes or something, and they listened, and they they really wanted them, and they called Bob, and Bob was going to go uh, like the uh, people in the in the in the radio part. I was the man. I was a manager of the team by that time. Mm-hmm. And I had thrown his name up. And the people, uh, what happened is they contacted him to come down to St. Louis for an interview. And he couldn't go that weekend because uh, he was doing a basketball tournament. Mm-hmm. And and he had already agreed to do the tournament. And by not going that weekend, then they, they were anxious to get going. So then they contacted uh, Dan Kelly up in Canada and they got him, they brought him down. <laughs> it's amazing how fast that works. Yeah, they wanted to, they, they were anxious, and he couldn't go for the uh, interview. Okay, so that was from Scotty Bowman. Bob Chase would have got the job if he would have went down and skipped out on his obligations, but instead they decided to, well, we're going to go with the other candidate, Dan Kelly, who ended up being a very legendary KMOX and sports broadcaster here for the Blues. I'm sure you have many great memories of Dan Kelly. Now, how does this all play with KMOX? This is where it might be a little stretch of the imagination. If Bob Chase would have taken the job here in St. Louis, doing the KMOX and St. Louis Blues hockey broadcasts, they would have, I'm sure, hired someone else, but it wouldn't have been Bob Chase. It wouldn't have been this great sports broadcaster. Doc Emmerich may not have developed a relationship or may not have connected with that broadcaster. You see, Doc Emmerich, I'm, I don't want to cut his talents any short, but Bob was also a mentor to him and a great friend. In all those years, they stayed very close to each other. And Doc Emmerich will go back and look at Bob Chase as just being one of the best broadcasters he's ever experienced. Who knows what would have happened to Doc Emmerich if he didn't have that relationship with Bob Chase. If Bob would have left and wasn't there in Fort Wayne, who knows what would have happened. It really could have changed the entire landscape of things. Um, how does this play into with me? Now, this is a stretch again. When Bob Chase passed away in 2016, it was on Thanksgiving morning. And the day after, we were trying to figure out what we we're going to do next. The following week, they did a memorial for him at the hockey arena. And a lot of people had their ability to come in and say their goodbyes. It would have been just a couple of weeks after that, I was fired from my job there in Fort Wayne. And I had a really good relationship with Bob Chase. And some people said to me, you know, this might be his way of looking down on you and saying, tipping his hat. 
I'm going to help you get that opportunity at the station that didn't work out for me. Now, that may be a stretch of the imagination, and I'm sure it is, but it's a nice thought. So I hope you enjoyed that. Good old Doc Emmerich, if you haven't seen the news, retiring after 50 years of broadcasting in the NHL. I would love to talk to Doc Emmerich again. I've interviewed him a few times. I hope maybe one day we can get him back on the show here on KMOX, and I can share this with him, the connections there. All right, joining us right after the break, our friend Rich Rubino. He does the American Politics on the Rocks, and we normally have a Monday conversation with him. I'm really looking forward to it. Coming up on Overnight America, KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri, play KMOX. He's author of American Politics on the Rocks, polita-geek.com. You can find him on social media as well. Rich Rubino, thanks for coming back. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be on again, Ryan. It's another debate week, so this is going to be a a double bubble week. So we'll get you tonight and Thursday after the debate, too, as long as everything goes as planned and nothing crazy. Because, you know, anything could happen between now and then. You never know. Oh, yeah, absolutely, especially in this election (laughs) uh, cycle. (laughs) I know. What an exciting one. And I don't know if exciting is the right word. What a uh, topsy-turvy. What's the right word to explain the 2020 election? I would say unprecedented. Okay, that's very, uh, very accurate. So I wanted to look at a few things that are going on, and one of which is this Hunter Biden laptop. It made me wonder in the past how politicians' kids may have shaped elections or at least played a part in some sort of elections. I'm sure there's many examples of that. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I guess one of them would be back in 1980. So Jimmy Carter's youngest daughter, Amy, and there was actually, it was interesting because Amy Carter actually, she actually, unlike a lot of um, first kids, she actually went to public school in Washington, D.C. And so essentially you had, this, you had this scenario where reporters sometimes could actually, could actually see her on the playground. And one, there was one time where one of them asked them the question, do you have any thoughts about the future of the, the, future of the country? And she, she was nine years old and she shot back, no. <laughs> but um, so there was one instance, though, and in this, so this is probably the most important debate that of American history, perhaps. 1980, uh, Jimmy Carter against Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan had debated John Anderson, the independent candidate. Jimmy Carter had refused to go to that debate. So they had one week before the election, and Jimmy Carter started talking about uh, the nuclear arms race. And there was one instance where he said, you know, I asked my daughter, Amy, what she thought was the most important issue facing the world today. And she said nuclear arms. So the Reagan campaign that we, the next week, and certainly some of the political intelligence that took to say, you know, is Jimmy Carter asking her nine, his nine-year-old daughter the questions about nuclear, about, about nuclear war, is that who he's consulting? And it was one of the reasons why Jimmy Carter went from essentially being tied to the popular vote one week before the election to losing 44 out of 50 states one week later. That was part of the reason. There were other reasons as well. Part of it was the fact that Ronald Reagan had showed that he could come off as kind of as, 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 a, as a moderate, having a moderate demeanor, whereas a lot of people had thought he was kind of an extremist. So that was, what the, that was definitely one that was definitely certainly an issue. And then another one, very Missouri-related, is actually Dick Gephardt's daughter. Because hmm. now Dick Gephardt, if you go back to his political history, he had always been an opponent of gay marriage. Um, he, was, he began his career actually rather socially conservative, when he ran for president, he um, changed his views a little bit and became somewhat more of a liberal. By, 19, by, by 2004, when he was running for president, he was, still, um, so he was still basically a social liberal, but he was, still, he was opposed to gay marriage. And his daughter had come out and had come out that she was gay herself. And she, she would talk to lots of groups. She talked at one point to a group at American University. And part of the issue was, you know, Dick Gephardt, although he had, he had positive 
uh, scores from the human rights campaign, for example, the gay advocacy organization, he still opposed gay marriage, despite the fact that his daughter herself um, was a lesbian who had a partner. And she said, I'm going to be if I get elected, I'm going to be an in-house lobbyist, essentially, meaning she would be a lobbyist for she would be a lobbyist for the gay community directly with her father uh, that year. Um, so that, that those are two that I think are probably um, are probably very interesting. Of course, to get partly ended up losing that election. But, you know, at that time, it was just interesting because you actually had a candidate who had a daughter who actually had a partner. And this was kind of where I think there was kind of a shift or a transmogrification in the way in the views on gay marriage. In 2004, the only 2004, when Dick Gephardt ran, the only candidates who were really against gay, who supported gay marriage that year were considered the fringe candidates, folks like Dennis Kucinich and Al Sharpton. By 2016, Every single major uh, Democratic presidential candidate, this is 2016, you know, certainly 2012, and certainly 2020, were supportive of gay marriage. It really changed, they really changed the trajectory, and that was really election where it was very much the Democratic Party was at the opposite pole in that. Ah, Rich Rubino, American Politics on the Rocks. Just uh, to kind of play off of a name you just mentioned there, Al Sharpton, what did you think of him as a politician? <laughs> well, you know, he was very natural, actually. And when he was running in part in 2004, um, he and Joe Lieberman, Joe Lieberman was probably the most conservative candidate. Al Sharpton was probably one of the most liberal candidates. Al Sharpton was also one of the most charismatic candidates. Joe Lieberman was one of the most uncharismatic candidates. But they actually had a very good relationship during those debates because they both came off as very laid back in many respects. And Al Sharpton, you know, he was inter- it was interesting because he, he did not – he. He did not garner a lot of a lot of support that year. Even a lot of people in the African American community who had supported Jesse Jackson, who would support Barack Obama um, in 2008, weren't supporting a different candidate that year. They viewed him as kind of somewhat of a fringe candidate. But when he give a speech, and he give a speech in New Hampshire, he give a speech in Iowa. People who weren't supporting him would start applauding him because, in part, he was speaking directly to the Democratic base. And there was an instance. That, I mean, that year, so George W. Bush in 2003 was relatively popular. And essentially what the Democratic Party, a lot of the major candidates like John Kerry and John Edwards were trying to do is they're not really criticizing um, George W. Bush directly. They're trying to kind of speak in platitudes in many respects. So that year at the convention, every candidate who ran, every major candidate who ran against John Kerry, who was a nominee, gave a speech. And Al Sharpton was the only one who really got up there. And he excoriated George W. Bush. And the, pl- the crowd absolutely loved it. He got all the plaudits. And um, Terry McAuliffe, the chairman of the Democratic Party, later said that he had, you know, he had essentially thought that that was the right thing for Al Sharpton to do, to get up there and really go after um, and really go after George W. Bush. And she thought that the other candidates really had made a faux pas or had made a mistake in not doing that. Hmm. You know, you mentioned this probably was it last week, maybe two weeks ago. It could have been a few weeks ago, but we were mentioning Mel Carnahan and the 20th oh, yes. anniversary that just came up a few days ago. There's been people writing about it in the newspaper, some different articles being republished. It's hard to believe that was 20 years ago. But, yeah, memories come to mind uh, during election time. And here in Missouri, you can't forget what happened with that crash. It's just really uh, real tragic. Yeah. And then uh, there was an, well, I mean, certainly that. And um, then the Paul Wellstone Remember, in 2002, very similar circumstances, and Paul Wellstone that year was up for re-election and against uh, Republican Norm Coleman, and this was in October of that year, and he, too, died in a plane crash. And what happened in 2000 with Mel Carnahan is essentially the acting governor agreed that he would, that agreed that if, with his name still being on the ballot, if Mel Carnahan was elected over Republican John Ashcroft, he would then appoint, the interim appointment would be Gene Carnahan, um, his his wife, and that eventually did happen. 
In the case of Paul Wellstone, what happened was the Democratic Party persuaded former Vice President Walter Mondale, who had actually served in the Senate before becoming a vice president, the vice president, to become the de facto uh, stand-in for Paul Wellstone. And, of course, he landed up actually – he landed up losing that debate, losing, which was kind of um, unfortunate for Mondale, because when he ran for president in 84, the one state he had won was Minnesota. So now in 2002, when he ran for a Senate seat himself, he ended up actually losing his home state. But in fairness to him, it wasn't really anti-Mondial as much as it was a Republican wave that year, Republican year. And um, Norm Coleman was relatively popular in Minnesota. Interestingly, he'd actually been the chairman of Bill Clinton's presidential campaign in 1996 for re-election when he was a Democrat. There have been a couple of instances where there there have been stand-ins. And, uh, in fact, a couple of times that happened when I was in Indiana before I moved here. There was one instance where someone that was running for the city council passed away before the election. The election went on, and there was a brief contention of what should happen, as in do they just drop off the race or does the party get a chance to fill that seat? And they successfully argued that, yes, the party would fill that seat because they argued you would basically disenfranchise all the voters who did all the absentee ballots before then to basically invalidate their pick because uh, not they wouldn't be able to put someone else on a ballot at that point. And um, they, so eventually they were able to name a successor, and at least in that local election. There was also, you see this once in a while with politicians, a lot of times on a state level, where if they go serve for the Army or something like that. So if oh, they yeah. go serve overseas, their wife normally sits in for them. That happened one time with uh, Jim Banks, who is now a congressman in Indiana, who, you know, he was a state senator, then went up into, to, you know, the Congress. But you, you, everyone wonders. So the succession of what could happen this time around in a middle of an election where there's millions of people have already voted. What if something happens to one of the major political candidates before the general election? How does that play out? Does it automatically de facto that the vice presidential pick would step forward in that case? Or it has I don't think that's ever happened, has it? Yeah, though, the closest we've had happen We've had a couple instances. There was one instance uh, in the election of 1876 with Ulysses S. Grant. His opponent that year, Horace Greeley, he, so Horace Greeley died after the day of the election, which he lost handily, but before the Electoral College met. Huh. Greeley was the Democratic nominee. So what happened that year, there were about 66 electoral votes that he won. Some of them gave it to uh, his vice presidential nominee, Thomas Hendricks. Others gave it to just ver- the, the electors, essentially, you know, they're basically, they were free agents in a sense. So some of them gave them to other people who had sought the Democratic nomination that year. Um, but as I say, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion because Grant had won that, had won that immeasurably. The other example would be 1912, when Warren, William Howard Taft, um, this was a week before the election, William Howard Taft's vice president, James Sherman, died. So what they did is the Republican Party put Nick, Nicholas Butler, who was the president of Columbus University, as said that he would be the stand-in as the vice presidential uh, nominee, but the party essentially chose that. But essentially what, what, what would happen is that if, if somebody were to die, say, say Trump or Biden were to die between the um, date of the election and the day when the Electoral College meets, Essentially, the Electoral College, certainly if the person was going to lose anyways, and, you know, essentially the electors would just go for somebody else, but it'll be a mute point. But if it were to be, if, if the word say that Donald Trump had won handily or Joe Biden won handily, I think what people would expect would be the electors would choose the vice presidential nominee as the presidential nominee. And certainly if the president did become, 
It certainly, if it was after that, then it, 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 it does essentially go down to from the president, and it does descend to the vice presidential nominee. So the vice presidential nominee would be inaugurated on January 20th. Yeah, and it makes you wonder, because some states have started to enact these, what are they called faithless elector laws? So yes, you yes. have to vote for who's on the ballot. You can't switch. So in the case of something like that happening, and they couldn't switch, and then hypothetically, maybe some states decide to switch or whatever, could it be that the person that actually lost the election hypothetically could end up winning it? If well, that, you know, you know oh, if, no, abs- if it split it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, all the Constitution says about the way it says each state shall appoint in the manner of which the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. That's all the elect- yeah. That's all essentially the word electoral college. That's a 1945 statute. nowhere in the Constitution. But the, re- the electors, ha- I mean, the states rather can decide that they're going to award their electors in any way they choose. That's why Maine and Nebraska, for example, have do it by congressional district. In Maine and Nebraska, essentially, whoever wins the popular vote of that state wins, uh, wins, the, uh, wins the two votes for the at-large, meaning for the senators, but then they have congressional districts. So the case of Maine, there's one congressional district that's going to go, it's, it's likely to go Democrat. There's another one that, that was like, more likely to go Republican that Donald Trump actually won last time. In the case of Barack Obama, for the first time in 44 years, you know, uh, the Democrats actually won the one congressional district that is, um, that is somewhat contested around college areas like, Ob- like um, Ob- Obama, yeah, like Omaha and Lincoln, mm-hmm. that area of Nebraska, very small geographically. But, you're, I mean, the Electoral College, essentially, there are some issues where, you know, um, when the Electoral College can meet, you're right. Would somebody be, if, if there's someone's a faithless elector, they'd say, okay, well, I'm going to vote for somebody else, and maybe I'll pay the fine or something like that. Um, there was an example, by the way, in, 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 in the 2000 election, there was an elector from D.C. who abstained in protest of the fact that D.C. did not have uh, statehood. But, of course, she was an Al Gore elector, and um, George W. Bush had already essentially, it was declared that, that he had gone, was going to be the winner after, uh, after, Florida, was, uh, after, after right. uh, Florida was decided. Wow, these uh, hypotheticals are always interesting. Do you mind holding on after the break? Sure, absolutely. Rich Rubino, author of American Politics on the Rocks, will join him next after the weather on Overnight America KMOX. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love. Hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. News Radio 1120 KMOX. The voice of the Cardinals. And here we are in Overnight America with our friend Rich Rubino. He is American Politics on the Rocks. Working on another book, which I can't wait to hear about when it's completed in politi-geek.com. 
You know, Rich, uh, you're on social media. People can find you on there. I wanted to look at a few other things that are going on when it comes to elections. Uh, Come from behind wins. Everyone loves the idea of someone that may be down and coming right back up into things. We watch the polls daily. We question the polls. We have distrust. We love the polls. It doesn't matter. You know, we just want to see what the latest thing is on that. Um, So can you think of any come from behind wins that uh, stand out that maybe even surprised you? Yeah, no, absolutely. The one, I mean, the epitome of it is obviously the one from 1948 with Harry Truman. Um, Truman has succeeded to the presidency after Franklin Roosevelt's uh, death in 1945. In 1946, the Democrats lost control of both the House and the Senate. By 1948, there was a movement in the Democratic Party to have somebody else as the Democratic nominee. Uh, Truman himself offered that up to Dwight Eisenhower, who was not a Republican or a Democrat at the time, would be the Democratic presidential nominee. He would stand back and become his vice presidential nominee. Uh, beyond to add insult to injury that year, in the 1948 convention, Hubert Humphrey, a young Minneapolis mayor, gave a speech where he supported a civil rights plank in the Democratic Party platform. And it passed, and it was something that Truman had supported. So as a result, the Southerners that year um, essentially left. They aggressed from, this, from the uh, convention. They formed their own party. The, uh, they, they formed their own party, known today as known as the Dixiecrats Party, and they nominated Strom Thurmond, the governor of South Carolina. Meanwhile, the left wing of the Democratic Party, the left flank, nominated Henry Wallace. The thought was that Truman really had, was dead as a doornail that year. He was, his campaign was seen as dormant, but he went around the country. He went about 31,000 miles, met about 3 million voters that heard him, saw him directly speaking. Thomas E. Dewey, meanwhile, the governor of New York, was trying to sit in the lead. He was trying to talk in platitude, say as little controversial as possible. And eventually on election night, Dewey certainly went to bed thinking he was going to win. And eventually Truman did win. So then you see that paper of him with the Chicago Tribune saying Dewey defeats Truman. <laughs> So that's one example of really, that was really an, an upset that kind of came out of nowhere. And it's something that George H.W. Bush in 92, when he was down in the polls, would say, essentially, I'm going to do what Harry Truman did. You may potentially see the same thing that Donald Trump would say, that there is some precedent um, for this. But there are a couple of near misses. And the, one of them was 1968. Hubert Humphrey was the vice president of Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson had not run for re-election. His job approval went down all the way to 38%. Hubert Humphrey was running to succeed him um, at the Democratic convention that year. There were riots in Chicago at Grant Park. The Democratic Party wanted Eugene McCarthy, the anti-war senator from Minnesota, to garner the nomination. Humphrey had won because the high command and the bosses essentially chose him, even though he, didn't, he only participated in one primary in South Dakota, where he came in third place. In some states, they had stand-ins who would run for Hubert Humphrey, but he was the establishment candidate. And Eugene McCarthy endorsed him very tepidly. Um, and he, in, in about a month before the election, saying essentially, you know, I'm going to support uh, Vice President Humphrey and ask my supporters to suffer with me. But what he did is he, on October, like September 30th that year, he was giving a speech in Salt Lake City, Utah, and he broke with President Johnson and said that he was elected, he would call for a unilateral bombing halt as an acceptable risk for peace, which broke from the Johnson po- policy. And as a result, he was down by 15 points, and every day he would get more and more supporters some of the young anti-Vietnam War protesters who said that maybe potentially we should support uh, Hubert Humphrey. They were a lot of the McCarthy supporters. So it got to the point where by Election Day he was almost tied, and they had a telethon that night where essentially both Nixon and Humphrey were on separate channels, and people would call up and Humphrey and Nixon would answer questions, and Humphrey had the advantage. All of a sudden Eugene McCarthy did call him up that day and said, you know, I just want you to know that I wholeheartedly support you. 
But Humphrey ended up losing that race by about a point in the electo- in the um, in the popular vote. And a lot of the thought process is that Humphrey had about two or three more days he potentially could have caught Nixon, and potentially won. But the biggest almost the biggest almost comeback was 1976. Gerald Ford succeeded Richard Nixon. He pardoned Richard Nixon. He went from 78% job approval rating the day before he pardoned him down to 48%, never fully recovered. Um, but Jimmy Carter, the former governor of Georgia, he had, par- he had a lot of problems trying to consolidate support in the Democratic Party, particularly the liberal bloodline of the party. Uh, he, gave a, he gave a speech, he gave an interview rather with Playboy magazine where he talked about having lust in his heart. And that essentially started, his, it started the ascendancy of the Ford campaign. He was down by 33 points. And he got to the point where by election day, he only lost by about one point. And Ford has always contended uh, that he believes that Ronald Reagan, who had challenged him in the Republican primary, had Ronald Reagan either not challenged him or had Ronald Reagan campaigned, more hard, campaigned harder for him in places like Mississippi, he thinks on the last few days of the campaign with conservative voters, he thinks he would have pulled off or would have, it would have inarguably been probably the greatest comeback in American political history. Wow. I have some political trivia for you. And oh, you may yes. know this, you may not. Why not? Because you mentioned the Dewey defeats Truman headline, which, yes. by the way, on a side note, that would have been great, hilarious if Donald Trump would have held up a paper that said uh, Clinton defeats Trump or something like that. <laughs> because everyone, you know, the polls leading into it and the way that they were projecting it, they said 90 plus percent chance that she wins the thing. Um, that would have been a nice little play on some of the history. Well, just, but, uh, I'll just add to that, there was one in 19, there was another very similar instance in 1976. So Mo Udall's running against Jimmy Carter in, in the Wisconsin primary, and it appears that Mo Udall has won, but some of the later returns showed Carter winning. And I mean, showed um, Carter landed up winning later returns, barely won. But you have this a great picture, and I'm sure you can see it online of Jimmy Carter holding up saying that Udall wins. <laughs> All right, so here's the bit of politi- yeah. political trivia for you. So the very famous photo: Dewey defeats Truman. He's holding up the newspaper. What newspaper is he holding up? Is it the Chicago Tribune? You're right, Chicago Daily Tribune. Very good. <laughs> you would do pretty good on Jeopardy if they had a politics category. You'd go right down the list. Boom, 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 boom. Now, well, that's also, what my, uh, the book I'm writing right now is actually about um, writing a kind of a compendium of political trivia, political stories. So hopefully that'll hopefully that'll be out in a little while, and um, you know um, the listeners will can. Um, can certainly revel in learning all these kind of political minutiae that for some reason I've had a congenital attraction to. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think they do too. So by the way, if people wanted to look you up on social media, where can they find you? Yep, you can see all my interviews on www.polita-geek.com or certainly find me on Facebook, Rich Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O, or on Twitter at Rich Rubino Paul. Awesome. American Politics on the Rocks is the name of the book at least the most recent one, a new one coming out soon. I can't wait to uh, hear more about it. Rich Rubino, thank you again for joining us on Overnight America. Thanks so much for having me on, and I'll see you on uh, Thursday. See you on Thursday. Wow. Last presidential debate. Does it count as the third one? It's really the second one, but it is the third scheduled one. He joins us on the Quiver River Electric Guest Line. (laughs) It'll go down in history as just one of the weird, weird things of the year. And coming up next, I wanted to give you an update on Rush Limbaugh. I don't know if you listened to his program today, but he's trending on social media because he gave an update on his lung cancer. And if you missed that update earlier today, I'm going to catch you up. This is Overnight America KMOX. Now back to Overnight America on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael's Flooring Outlet.com. 
And Overnight America is live with you tonight up until midnight, then midnight to 2, a replay hour. This You may actually be listening to this on the replay hour right now, which is kind of cool. Note that we do have the podcast online at kmox.com slash ONA, which stands for Overnight America. And if you'd like to go download the podcast, subscribe, send it to a friend. Maybe you want to go listen to one of my radio documentaries, like the Ann Keefe documentary I just put out last week. KMOX.com slash ONA. Great place to get a link to it. And we have another KMOX special coming up, not this week, but next week. I got the okay. Next Thursday, the 29th, we are going to rebroadcast some classic Jim White Halloween spooktaculars. <laughs> if you remember listening to those over the years, so many people loved it. Luckily, thanks to a listener of the show and someone that has listened to KMOX for many, many years, he reached out to me and he said, hey, I have a couple of the old spooktaculars if you'd like them. And I said, yes. So we're going to air three hours of it next Thursday night, the uh, 29th. And then on a Halloween night, the 31st, our program director, Steve Moore, said, oh, you know what? Let's uh, You can do it. We'll just air it on Halloween night, too. So big thanks to John Reber, who sent me those. And I'm going through it right now. It's not going to be any one show particular. I'm going to mesh together certain parts of multiple shows. So I think that uh, you'll really enjoy it. I'm going through it now, and it's actually very fun to listen to. Rush Limbaugh, he is someone that is well-known in this region, considering he's from Cape Girardeau, grew up listening to KMOX, had much love and respect, not only for the radio station, but for great broadcasters here, including Jack Buck. You hear stories about him visiting KMOX in his early years of syndication, and he would come in, and he just wanted to meet Jack Buck, and then he would. Jack Buck would walk in, and he would be starstruck. This is Rush Limbaugh. Keep in mind, at the time, he was just completely blowing up as a personality, television and radio personality at the time. And this is someone that was well sought after and just became immensely popular. And all he wanted to do was meet Jack Buck. He even mentions Jack Buck on his show. Sometimes I, I hear it every once in a while. He'll bring up KMOX. And he did say there was two radio stations he wanted to work for in his career. And he felt his career would be complete. And one of those radio stations was KMOX. In fact, he did some sample shows here on KMOX. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Rush Limbaugh gave an update on his health today. We know that he has lung cancer. We know earlier that it was said to be stage four lung cancer, and it's not often that Rush Limbaugh gives an update on it. He said he doesn't want to go out there and just cry about himself, but he says he felt like he wanted to at least let people know how things were going, and he started the show today by doing that. I want to play at least a part of the message so you can hear it. This is a few minutes long. So if you listen today at 11 o'clock, this is what you heard. But if you haven't, it'll be good for you to catch up on good old L. Rushbo. Don't like to talk about it often because I don't want to be a cancer patient on the radio. And there's another thing, too. Folks, it's an up and down thing. It's, it really is a day-to-day -day thing. And so what I tell you one day could very well be true. And then the next day, oops, setback, oops, what? Then I got to go back and say, folks, what I told you yesterday, forget it. It's not true today. Um, don't want to put you through that. Don't want to put myself through it. But I know you're concerned. So it is time. I do want to provide you with a brief and uh, honest update. In a nutshell, there are lots of ups and downs in this particular illness. And it can feel like a roller coaster at times that you can't get off of. So last week was treatment week. Was it last week was treatment week? 
the week before, week before was treatment week, and got some scans. Don't get scans every treatment week. The scans did show some progression of cancer. Now, prior to that, the scans had shown that we had uh, rendered the cancer dormant. That's my phrase for it. Uh, we had stopped the growth. It had been reduced, and <clears throat> it had become uh, manageable. But there's always the reality and the knowledge that that can change and that it can come back because it is cancer. It eventually outsmarts uh, pretty much everything you throw at it. And this, of course, this is stage four lung cancer. It was, a lot of people have said, well, why, why did you wait until it was stage four? There was no way to know when it was stage one is the thing. There would have been no reason to go get a bunch of scans at stage stage one, just a bunch of little nodules running around. And even if you got a scan, it showed a bunch of nodules. They say, got to keep a sharp eye on this. There's some nodules here, some nodules there. But it really doesn't present as what it is, this type of cancer, until it's stage four. And stage four is, as they say, uh, terminal. So... We have some recent progression. It's not dramatic, but it is the wrong direction. So we have to tweak the treatment plan, which we did, and the chemotherapy drugs in hopes of keeping additional progression at bay for as long as possible. So the idea now is to keep it where it is, or maybe have it reduce again. We've shown that that is possible. If it happened once, it can happen again. So that's the objective of the current uh, treatment plan. For those of you that, that have been paying attention to the ball game analogy of this, uh, my last left off, I was rounding second base. And I was chugging toward third. The objective to hit a home run, to get a home run, go all the way around the bases, get the home plate and beat this. So I was rounding second on the way to third, and I realized I wasn't going to make it. I had to turn around, make a mad dash, head back to second base, slid in there, got into second base safely, and that is where I am. I was trying to steal third base, trying to steal some more ground. But I got waved back to second base. So that's where I am, stuck on second base, fully committed, however, to stealing third and rounding towards home. That is the update from Rush Limbaugh. The update was about 13, 14 minutes long. I, I kind of put two sections of it together just to for the sake of time, and even that was. But I, I felt like we should give the due diligence, the time to Rush to at least know that. Um, here's the headline from Fox News. Uh, let me just read this, and I think it speaks to the magnitude of what he's dealing with. Cancer-stricken Rush Limbaugh says he can no longer deny he's under a death sentence. He said, you know, I wake up every day and thank God that I did. And he talked about his relationship with the Lord, and I, th I thought that was a wonderful piece by Rush. And we very much love him, and we wish him the best and hopefully continued in the right direction in his uh, progress. Coming up next, a local author. We're going to talk some candy with Patrick Murphy on Overnight America Camo X. 
TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to tunein.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.